Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, you guys know I've had many near-death experiencers on the show, but I've always wondered what it's like, what near-death experiences are like across cultures, across history, across time. Well, today's guest is the leading authority on near-death experience and the afterlife across cultures and throughout history. We have on the show Dr. Gregory Shushan. And Dr. Shubin and I had a fantastic conversation on what it's like for tribal people uh, in Africa or in Australia to have a near-death experience, what it was like for the ancient Egyptians and the accuracy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and so much more. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Greg Shushan. How are you doing, Greg? Good. Thanks. How are you doing? Thanks I'm doing very... Oh, thank you for coming on the show. Like I was telling you before we got on, I'm super excited to talk to you because I've been studying near-death experiences and I've interviewed a lot of the leading figures in in that in the movement, you know, Raymond Moody and so on, and spoken to a lot of near-deathers, but I've never I just kept saying I've said it so many times on the show, Jesus is busy. He's yeah. constantly everywhere. He shows up at all of these near-death experiences, but what happened to Buddha? What happened to these other, you know, and other other deities, other, you know, Shiva, Shiva showing up, you know, like who's, where are all these other cultures and how, how are they experiencing near-death experiences, which is what your work is all about. So my very first question is, um, how did you get into researching uh, near-death experiences of indigenous people? Uh, it started, I actually started out in archaeology and specifically Egyptian archaeology and Eastern Mediterranean. And while I was doing um, that research, um, this was in London at the Institute of Archaeology, um, University College London. Um, you know, you read learning hieroglyphs and you're researching the ancient texts and learning about the afterlife beliefs and all that. And as I'm reading things like the coffin texts and the Book of the Dead and the pyramid texts, it's suddenly kind of thinking, well, that sounds a little bit familiar in, in a kind of general way. And I started noticing, you know, they leave the body and they enter darkness. They travel through darkness. Um, they come into a realm of light. They meet the sun god, who is a being of light. Um, there's a kind of association between the dead person and the god Osiris, who's the god of the dead. And 
the deceased person meets the corpse of Osiris in the other world. And because the deceased person is Osiris at the same time, it's kind of like they're encountering their own corpse while they're out of their body. And seeing their own corpse while they're out of their body is the thing that makes them realize, okay, I'm dead, but I'm still alive. I'm still conscious. And, um, and then that's also the thing that allows them to progress to the next level. And then there's the evaluation of their life on earth. And then they reach a certain barrier, which they have to transcend. Um, so a lot of very general things that were similar to NDEs. And it just, it got me thinking. And I'm I'm assuming I mean did you, when you started going down this research path, uh, were your colleagues, and uh, you know the establishment open to a lot of these ideas, or were you know did you have some issues? Yeah, it's funny because um, at the Institute Institute of Archaeology, they were completely fine with it. Um, they they just thought, well, it's really interesting, and and I went on to do my MA there, which um, I did a thesis comparing uh, Egyptian afterlife beliefs and Vedic Indian afterlife beliefs. So like pre-Hindu kind of, you know, ancient Indian religious traditions um, in relation to near-death experience, you know, specifically. And they were completely fine with it. Um, it was only really kind of when I went into religious studies that I, I, <laughs> I encountered a little, uh, you know, theoretical resistance. And, and there's, it's, it's a long story, but the, the short version is basically that um, there's this real distinction between religious studies and theology. Religious mm -hmm. studies is, is secular and it's more kind of anthropological, sociological, um, which is fine and it, it's great that, that it exists, but there's a there's kind of a chip on it on their shoulder. They really want to make that distinction between religious studies and theology. So anything that has to do with anything mystical or or like a, a religious experience or something, they kind of hold it at arm's length and think that you know you shouldn't really be. Um, taking these kinds of things seriously. It's okay to to see them as that's a cultural thing within that culture, but to say it's a universal thing across cultures, you know, that's that's taboo. That's smuggling theology or spirituality into a secular um, field of Interesting. study. Interesting. Yeah, because God forbid you like mix them up, right? Like you can... You, exactly. You, you, yeah, because that's the way the world works. Everything's very compartmentalized, <laughs> you know. Geology yeah. is over here. Science is over here. That's, that's just not the way the universe works. Everything kind of is all mixed up all the time exactly yeah so so from your experiences all right so let's go from your studies let's go back to the basic understanding of what a, a near-death experience is from my understanding from talking to a lot of the experts the phenomenon of near-death experience which was coined by raymond moody back in the 70s they really didn't start coming into play or the stories hitting more and more in the in publicly because we started to be able to resuscitate people with you know CPR and modern medicine so more people were coming back from the dead how much of that was happening in the ancient world and in different in different parts of the world yeah that's a good point um because you know we know about near-death experiences going way way back but they were you know much rarer I think than they are today because of um you know advances in resuscitation technology and all that so um so I think that that's part of the reason why um, there aren't as many NDEs from the past and part of the reason why it kind of took until the 20th century and Raymond Moody to, to put this together and to name it. Um, it's not that they weren't happening before that. It's just that they didn't have a name and they were they were much more um, yeah, scarce that they occurred. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the essentially the way I, I approach the whole subject is I don't determine if something's a near-death experience by the content. I, I determine it by by the context, by basically like, d 
did the person die and come back to life? And of course, we can't measure that from a past society, an ancient society or, or whatever. Um, so we just have to kind of take th this culture's word for it. So, um, you know, if there's a, a Pacific tribe on some island and they said, so-and-so died and we were preparing his burial and then he came back to life and he told us what happened in between, um, you know, I accept that as a, as a near-death experience. So even if he doesn't talk about, um, you know, a being of light or a tunnel or any of the kind of familiar elements. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the familiar elements, you know, the, 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 the cliche, if you will, of near-death experiences uh, or common elements are the life review, um, sometimes the council of elders, uh, uh, sometimes meeting uh, either a spiritual uh, deity of either like, like joking about Jesus or uh, re relatives. Uh, the darkness is something that's very common into the light love, oneness. These are all basic concepts that are general and they vary from person to person, but as a general statement, they all seem to have these, at least one, if not multiple of these things, you know, from culture to culture. So, you know, from, I mean, as many, I mean, there's a thousand cultures, but, you know, from like broad strokes from like Meso Mesoamerica to uh, the Vedic Indians, to China, to um, Australia or, or Peloponnesian, what did they, did they have life reviews? Can we talk about it like a little bit by culture? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the first point you made is, is a really good one that um, even between Western Indies, the stereotypical ones that, that we read about that, you know, people write books about, I saw heaven and this, this kind of thing, even they're different. So that kind of first thing to take on, on board is um, if it's this kind of universal experience, then why are they different even within a particular culture? So, and, and even Moody recognized that in, you know, 1975, he, he said, um, he identified what 15 elements or whatever it was and said, no single NDE or has all of those experiences in their NDE. So it's kind of like this. Um... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I look at it as like a, a repertoire of, of, of experiences from which an individual draws for whatever reason in, in their NDE. Um, yeah, and most of them, um, possibly all of them occur in different places around the world at different times, but there also definitely seems to be um, kind of cultural, culturally determined things uh, that, that happen or don't happen depending on, on the culture. So one example is in small scale societies, indigenous, you know, tribal societies around the world, uh, it's very rare to have any idea of like rushing through a tunnel, um, even rushing through darkness or anything like that. The way they get to the other world is by walking along a path or a road. Um, and they can even describe like they see the footprints of other spirits who had been, you know, walking that path before them. Uh, sometimes they see people who have just had an NDE on their way back, uh, walking in the opposite direction. So the person having the NDE describing it, you know, they're walking this way and they're seeing people walk back this way, going back to their bodies, which is, um, which is pretty interesting. So the whole idea of, you know, dying and, and going to the other world is there. It's just the means of, of conveyance is different depending so, on the culture. So do you think that is because of the, from my understanding on a spiritual standpoint is that whole experience of a near death experience or going through the, the, the dying process is custom designed 
to make it as easy and comfortable, generally speaking, sometimes there's darkness in it, but generally speaking, easy and comfortable for the person. So if they were raised Christian, Jesus shows up. If they were raised right. Buddhist, Buddha, and, and, and you know, in, in the indigenous uh, tribes that you're talking about, a tunnel of light, they wouldn't even conceive that. But walking a path is something that they can, oh, this is comfortable. for. I understand what this is. And it's yeah. like you're flying in air. It would be terrifying for yeah. them. It wouldn't be a comfortable thing. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, there are examples. There's, there's always exceptions that prove the rule. Always. So so there's there's interesting symbolic things. Like there's an African indigenous example. I can't remember the um, the culture but they enter into a, um, a little hole in a tree. So, so that's kind of going into darkness and then, and then but they for go them, down. But for them, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, so the, it's almost like the um, whoever or whatever is creating the near death experience, even if it's our own brains or, or whatever um, it's, it needs some kind of symbolic expression for us to be able to even understand what's going on. So what might be happening is the soul or consciousness or whatever is, moving from the body to some other state of being um the way it's getting there is irrelevant but our minds need to uh you know process the journey there so for some people it's going to be walking along the road others it's going to be you know rushing through a tunnel you know, but you know by the same token there's not like people don't describe driving there or taking a cruise ship there or <laughs> or whatever <laughs> Right. It's, it's some it's some basic understanding. It's a basic thing that wouldn't make sense to the person it's happening to, that the consciousness can comprehend it, not the mind as much because we're dead uh, <laughs> or dying. But but consciousness is just for you to just experience that. Well, again, this is from my just for me interviewing so many people and talking about this subject so much. It seems like that that seems to be the way because you generally, you know, if you were. If you're an indigenous person, Jesus showing up, they'd be like, "Who, who, who this?" Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like it didn't, it wouldn't make any sense. It might be terrifying. It might not. It wouldn't be comforting. And that yeah. seems like there's a transition of breaking through the kind of like pulling yourself out of a of a movie. Kind of like yeah. you're the actor, and now and you've been playing a part, and you're pulling the act. Like, come on, no, 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 you're not Hannibal Lecter anymore. You need to <laughs> come off the set. Look, look, there's lights. Look, yeah. there's a there's a crew. Let's just keep walking. Go down that <laughs> go down that hallway, and everything will be explained. Kind right. of event. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that sounds reasonable. Um, yeah. Um, and and it's also even. But but then again, there's also things like the life review that you mentioned. Right. Um, you know, we would expect that to be pretty common in in different cultures, um, but it's actually not. And and again, in um, small scale indigenous societies, especially. It's almost non-existent. There, there's sometimes a, a kind of evaluation of of the person's life. Like, did you, um, you know, that they might be questioned or or um, kind of evaluated in some way to the effect of, did you perform the correct rituals? Did you, um, you know, it's always some something that has to do with the community. Really, um, did did you give to the poor or something like that? Um, but like a very personal life review where your your life flashes before your eyes and you. Often in, in near-death experiences that we hear about, the person will say they they felt the emotions of everybody that they interacted with. So if you if you hurt somebody, then you're going to feel their pain during your your life review, um, and that just does not happen in um, in the small scale societies. Um, and what's important about that is, uh, you know, a lot of people will think it, it frustrates people because a lot of people want to see the near-death experience 
in this very kind of cut and dried way. And they want to see it according to the Western model that the people who who write the books um, tell us about. Um, and but what's it, what's interesting and important about it is a lot of the um, scientists who are studying NDEs or or studying death and then make uh, speculations about NDEs, they use that model in formulating their theories. So just to give an example, um, a few months ago, there was a study where they monitored a, a guy's brain as he was dying. And it replicated a study that they'd done with rats who were dying and or that were dying in it. And in uh, different kinds of studies where they found that the brain lights up at the moment of death. There's this burst of activity rather than just death, which is what, what they would expect. So these scientists speculate that, oh, that means neurons are firing in the brain. And that explains the life review. That explains the NDE because there's a burst of, of activity flooding the mind with all of your memories and whatever. So the response to that is, okay, but if people in indigenous societies are not having life reviews and it's supposed to be a physiological occurrence, um, how can you explain that? So, so on the one hand, it might seem like a challenging thing to the idea that near-death experiences are real experiences of an afterlife. But at the, on the other hand, it's a challenge to uh, materialist theories, the dying brain theory that say, you know, it's just special effects of, of the dying brain. Because the special effect should be the same everywhere. Whoever right. It, exactly. <laughs> so it should be cut and dry if it's a physio if it's something physical happening in exactly. the brain. Everyone should have the exact same near-death experience. There shouldn't be a variation uh, at all if it's something physically happened. Because we, you know, physically we all generally have the same experiences. You know, we exactly, both, yeah. you know, we break a bone, we're all gonna hurt the same way. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's it not could gonna be still filtered through culture, you know, but but to have entire elements that don't even exist in particular in particular cultures, that's you know that's a challenging thing that needs to be explained really. Well, let me ask you then: Would it make sense that a more basic culture, which is these tribal cultures, they don't have the complexities of us? And, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong. Of let's say you and I, who have so many different interactions, so many different complexities in our behavior. There's so much you know, happening in our, in, in our interactions with other human beings, you know, we're, we're lying and we're doing this and maybe we're trying to get ahead and maybe we want to hurt someone politically or all this complexity that we do. They, they don't have these kind of complexities in a more tribal base. It's much more basic of like, did you, were you good to the community? Like really mm -hmm. basic meat and potatoes kind of things that they deal with on a day in day out basis. Cause they're, and again, please correct me, but like their basic understanding, their basic is their basic line is survival. And right. it's about being surviving the day and making we have feet meat and protecting us from the lions and protecting us from other tribes and things like that, where you and I generally don't have to deal with the lion. Hmm. We we have to deal with the tax man, uh, which yeah. is much worse than the lion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, so would that make sense that the near-death experience would be a little bit more basic? based on the experience that that soul, if you want to go down that road, that soul had in their lifetime. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's more basic. I would say it's just different, but but it's a it's a good point that um, I think what it is is, and and this there's been uh, in the early days of, of near-death studies, uh, there's a scholar, Alan Kelly here. He's the first one who started looking at um, the cross-cultural NDEs and especially in small indigenous societies. Um, he found a really interesting one from 19th century Hawaii and, and a few others. Um, but 
even based on the five or six he found, he speculated that uh, because the kind of whole focus of, of a person was on the community, they were very community focused right. in comparison to Western societies where we're very individual focused. Um, everything is about the self, you know, selfies and, and social media and everything <laughs> right. is this kind of very, very individualistic. We don't, we're not constantly engaged with what our neighbors are doing, helping our neighbors out sharing things with neighbors. Um, I mean, we do to a certain extent, but it's not like we're all living in this village-based community with, you know, all our houses around a circle or whatever. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So um, he kind of correctly predicted that when more um, indigenous and small-scale NDEs are found, that they're not going to have life reviews. And, and he said it's because of that kind of community focus rather than the individual focus. And I think that's that's gotta be correct. And, and it's exactly what I found. You know, I found something like over a hundred in um, you know, Native American, African, and Polynesian and Melanesian societies. And for the most part, there there's very few life reviews. And I and I think that's gotta be the explanation that. It's just not relevant for them to be individually judged in the afterlife. They're kind of maybe judging the community or something. But um, yeah, it's not like up to one person to to be judged or not. So let me ask you, in, in the Vedic Indian traditions, or because I'm, I'm fascinated with that, I want to hear, I haven't heard an Indian NDE yet, or even a, an ancient Indian uh, NDE, because they have 2,000 gods? In there, in, in Hinduism, yeah, in yeah. Hinduism, it is, and then there's Jainism, and and then there's farther back, which I'm sure you could tell us about. What happens? Who shows up? Like, what happens in a an Indian NDD? Like, is the you know is is uh, what's his name? The elephant. I always forget. Oh, um, Ganesh. Ganesh. Does Ganesh show up? Does Shiva show up? Uh, who who who's there generally? Because in Western Christian, it's always Jesus. Like I said, Jesus is a very busy man. Um, yeah. But in in that culture, do they show up and do do these religious uh, deities show up to help? They do, yeah. Um, that, but even that, because of um, even within uh, you know massive, diverse polytheistic, I was going to say tradition, but it's really a set of traditions. Like Hinduism is like oh. a bunch of religions, <laughs> yeah, all, so, all matched up, right? Yeah. So I think um, you know a, a Vaishnava is going to have an NDE where you know. Krishna or, or Vishnu or an avatar of Vishnu shows up. Same with, um, you know, Shiva. Um, the ancient ones, the ones, there's a, a kind of interesting stream of um, journeys to the underworld texts in in uh, Indian literature, going back to the Rig Veda, which is the earliest. Um, Western scholars date it to like 1500 or 2000 BCE. Yeah. Indian scholars date it to like 10,000. <laughs> so, um, but uh, then it's it's a kind of, this plot where um, a father of a young boy sends him to the other world uh, to either learn about the afterlife or um, in a later version in the Upanishads, it's because he's really annoyed with this kid who keeps badgering him asking questions. So he just says, you know, just get to the underworld, which which basically, you know, ineffectively, it means that he, he kills him. So um, it kind of develops over time, but I think it's probably based on you know, a, an early knowledge of the near-death experience. So if, in the Upanishads version, which is kind of the most um, fleshed out, the most most formed one, uh, the little boy goes to the underworld and his name is uh, Nachiquitas, if anyone wants to look it up. 
Um, he goes to the underworld and uh, the god of the dead, who's named Yama, uh, isn't there. And so the kid's just waiting and he ends up waiting there for three days. So Yama finally turns up and he says, you know, yes, I'm so sorry, this lapse of hospitality. I know you've been waiting all this time. What can I do for you? I'm going to grant you three wishes. So um, he grants the, the boy three wishes and the boy says, uh, interesting, one of them is he wants the love of his father, basically, the father who just killed him to send him to the other world. He wants his, you know, the, the love and respect and attention from his father. Um, the other one is he wants the secret of a fire ritual, which is related to, um, you know, the soul going to the afterlife and and things like that. And But the main one is that he wants to know the nature of the afterlife and the secret of immortality and uh, basically what, what the afterlife and life and death are all about. And Niyama kind of uh, hems and haws for a while. He doesn't really want to give him this information, but he eventually does. And, um, and it's in very kind of obscure esoteric language, but it's essentially the... Um, the secret that the self, which in Hinduism is called the Atman, it's like the the inner unchanging self that's always the same through however many incarnations that you have. The soul, the soul, in other words. Right. Yeah. Um, that it's actually the same, one and the same as the universal consciousness, transcendent spirit, or whatever, which is called uh, Brahman. So essentially, it's like the realization, the secret of life and death and immortality is the realization. That there's no difference between you and the divine and the, the transcendent. So, um, so that's an interesting example from of, of a very early Indian indie where um, you know the, he meets Yama, who's the god of the dead. And you don't really come across that in contemporary Hindu Indies very much because there's not like a vibrant, continuous tradition of worship of Yama, the god of the dead. So they're often met with um whichever god that the particular person's most devoted to. It's interesting. What you just said is basic is the basis of yogic philosophy right. and the ascended master. And you know, when they they discover and understand at a soul level that they have they are one with the universe, is when they become enlightened. Buddha did it, Jesus did it, and many other ascended masters did. So it's really fascinating that that story is essentially the basis of <clears throat> a truth that yogis have been talking about for thousands of years and it came from an, an nde if you will exactly yeah and and that is one of the that's one of the more important cross-cultural features of ndes as far as i'm concerned i mean all the stuff about walking along the road in life review it's all interesting but um the fact that the messages that people bring back from the afterlife is often like things like we don't die um there's a, a better realm coming um, you're not just your body. You're this kind of divine being or spirit being or whatever. Um, what's the phrase? You're you're, you're not a um, you know you're a soul being having a human experience or embodied experience rather than the other way around. Um, so there's there's also this kind of um, bringing back positive news from the afterlife and bringing back. It's like a realm of uh, transformation. And so when somebody comes back, they they bring these positive things into the community and it, the idea is that it then has a, a positive effect and a wider effect on the community. And in fact, there's a whole, um, with a lot of native American accounts going back to like 19th century and even earlier, a lot of shamans would become shamans because of the fact that they had an NDE. And there's whole religious movements in fact, that were based on the NDE of a particular person. So, um, can you give an example or is there anything popular uh, that we might know? Sure, the uh, the ghost dance religion is is a pretty um, 
famous example. And there was a, um, the person who founded that religion, actually there were a couple of them, but one of them was called um, Wovoka, this, this um, uh, tribal shaman elder guy. Um, he had an NDE and he was told in the other world basically to come back and, you know, spread this, um, you know, new teachings about um, the afterlife and the spirits and, and how to um, get information and access the other world. So he, and, and he was also taught this particular dance that would enable anybody to do it. So, um, and that became the, what's called the ghost dance religion. And people would, you know, the whole tribe would, would get together and with this in their mind that they're going to dance until they collapse and go to the other world, other world that they would, they would essentially do it. So it's effectively, he was, um, you know, democratizing near-death experiences, making it, making them available for anyone to have them without actually dying. Uh, but so they and the community could could receive the benefits from it, the the wisdom and the knowledge and enlightenment, and sometimes even claims of like um, healing powers and precognition and things like that. And would and does like psychedelics have anything to do with those those kind of traditions? Because obviously psilocybin, peyote, these kind of um, psychedelics induce a kind of near-death experience coming literally a come to jesus conversation in many yeah. instances um with that with that so i've heard i mean obviously shamanism uh especially here in the in, in like in the in the north uh the northeast and uh and in, in the area here in the united states you know peyote is a very big um thing in regards to that did you encounter any of that stuff in your research yeah, absolutely yeah that's um that's definitely one of the the ways that people can get to the afterlife. And there's a whole sort of shamanic tradition of, um, you know, taking psychedelics or, or other forms of um, entheogens, they call them drugs that, um, you know, bring about a sort of religious experience. Um, yeah, lots of examples of. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. For one thing, uh, shamans taking them in order to travel to the other world, often with the intention of, of rescuing the soul of somebody who's about to die. Um, so they actually travel there and, and to meet the soul of the person who's having the NDE and, and bring them back. Um, but then often just to bring about an NDE, to go there and, and commune with the ancestors or, or to get advice or whatever. Um, but there's also another kind of interesting dimension to these, um, they call them religious revitalization movements, where uh, especially during times of, you know, colonial dominance, when that was first happening, when the, the British and the French and whoever was coming over and stealing native land and, and slaughtering natives and all this, um, there was, there seemed to be a whole sort of series of NDEs where people um, would go to the other world and they would come back and say, um, I met the creator being, who is often described as radiating light, by the way, it's usually a being of light. I met this being and he said, um, you know, resist the teachings of the Europeans, um, stop drinking their alcohol, stop using their weapons, um, you know, start doing this particular kind of um, ceremonial dance, uh, start doing these kinds of offerings and rituals. And then on the other hand, there would be examples where they would go and they would come back and say, um, in order to survive, we need to cooperate with the Euro European invaders. Um, we need to start um, adopting their methods of, of farming, we need to trade with them and all this this kind of thing. So that's it's a real kind of um 
it's not that these experiences were, were generating NDEs, but the way people, what they did with the NDE when they came back um, was this kind of, um, you know, it varies between cultures. And at that time, it became like a kind of political movement. Um, and there's even cases where um, I'm, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, and just north of here is Taos. And there was a big um, a Pueblo rebellion that was started by um, a Pueblo Indian named Pope. And he had, um, we don't know if it was a shamanic experience or an actual near-death experience. In, in other words, if it was spontaneous or if he brought it on himself, but he was told during that experience, his voyage to the other world to, you know, come back and fight the Spanish and and kick them out. So um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting that it can have all these different kinds of dimensions, but all of them have to do with um, transformation and and kind of um, enlightenment in bringing it back to earth. It's so interesting because, you know, if this was a physiological, I can't say the word, um, thing that happens to us when we die, it's really interesting that the people that do come back, it's always positive. It's never negative. There's never in. Yeah. There's never like, dude. Just enjoy this, man. Because the next level, oof, it's gonna be rough. Like you know, it, it yeah. that does never ever comes back like that. Everybody that comes back is transformed. Generally speaking, uh, they they are positive. They are more loving. They are more connected with everyone. Understanding the, the oneness of of humanity. These are all basic concepts that near-deathers have is that something that you found in through ancient near-deathers as well as cross-cultural yeah um it's it is almost always a, a positive message that they come back with um or when there isn't an overtly positive one there just isn't one at all so um for example there's a really the, the whole um sub sub-saharan african um nde world is, is really interesting because for one thing, there are very few examples at all. Um, and for another thing, uh, when there are examples, they're they're not like the Native American accounts where with Native Americans, they, there was this whole kind of vision quest idea and the shamanic other world journey. So they were really open to them. But in a, a lot of African societies, uh, they were concerned about possession and concerned about sorcery and the positive uh, possible negative influences of, of like uh, ancestor spirits who live in the forests and that kind of thing. So if a person came back from the dead and started talking, they didn't see them immediately as like, Oh, you know, my wonderful relative came back to life. They thought, no, that's a corpse that's been reanimated. They didn't even think that their ancestor was in there anymore. Right. Um, it was, it was either sorcery or possession. So, you know, sometimes they would stone them to death there are funerary rituals where um, they would actually bind their hands and feet and pile rocks. So in case they did, um, I don't even want to say wake up uh, because in their minds, it wasn't they were, that they were waking up in case their body was used by a sorcerer uh, to come back and wreak havoc on the, on the village, they wouldn't be able to break free from, from the grave. So, um, so that's just a, a really, another really uh, kind of interesting cultural difference. Um, and it, and it just kind of shows that, uh, Again, near-death near-death experiences are happening all around the world, but what people do with them are very different. And in those cases, um, just to go back to the question, they people didn't come back and say, uh, "I met this being of light," and he said, "We need to stop um, stoning near-death experiences to death, <laughs> or, or we need to, to you know Im improve our the way we treat women or or slaves or whatever it is." Um, they didn't have a chance 
to talk about these things. So, so they, they were, and, and even when there are examples of, um, you know, myths about the afterlife where somebody travels to the other world and comes back, it's almost never involves the person dying. It's like, I followed an antelope through a hole in the ground to the other world. And from that point, it sounds more like a, like an NDE or, or like a mythologized NDE, but the way they get there isn't dying. It's, it's, um, you know, following an animal or, or one of them, I, I followed, there was a palm nut that I saw rolling down the, the, the road and I followed it into a hole in the ground. So, so this real, um, it's just not okay in a lot of those cultures to die and come back to life. So, so essentially Alice in Wonderland is a near death experience, essentially, Yeah, because you're, that's, that's you're following amazing. a rabbit down the rabbit hole and she goes into another world and learns lessons and then brings it back. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> many it's psychedelic no 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 question she took psilocybin is what happened that's what alice took <laughs> yeah well she did have that mushroom but you know <laughs> there, i mean exactly there's a lot of mushrooms going on i mean come on yeah. now in across cultures as well um you mentioned this early on in our conversation and there's something that i've seen common as well in near-death experiences is that there is a point of no return mm-hmm. there is a from what i understand depending on cultures there's a either a silver string, something holding the soul back mm-hmm. to to the body. And once that you pass, and they've been and and many NDEs years I've spoken to have said, I was told if you go past that, you can't go back. Yeah. Like there's a point of no return. Is that something cross-cultural and over the over the centuries as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really common um you know element of the of the NDE that happens. Um, not the silver cord. I, I That's think the silver, yeah, yeah. That seems to be, uh, um, as far as I know, it's maybe came from theosophy, Madame Blavatsky and, and that kind of, um, you know, Western esoteric sort of tradition. I don't, I don't know if it preceded that, um, but it's not specifically my area, but yeah, there's very few NDs that, that have a silver cord and I haven't come across any, um, in different cultures, but yeah, there's always a barrier from which you can't return. And then there's also, often some kind of symbolic, um, I don't know, test or trial that that if you fail it, then then you're not going to return. So one is, uh, if you get hungry in the other world and you eat something, then that ensures that you're not going to be able to come back. Um, oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And that, is that cross-cultural? That's, is that cross-cultural? That's strangely cross-cultural, yeah. Really? Yeah, so. Is that more, is that ancient or is that more just like within the last few hundred years or last 500 years? It's a little of both. It's it's really common in uh, Native American accounts, um, but then it's also in Greek mythology, which is which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting. So, which is you know absolutely no possibility of um, cultural connection there. You know, it's not like the Native Americans got it from the Greeks. Let me ask you. So, a lot of these NDEs, and we're talking about NDEs as someone who goes to the to the other side and comes back. Is there any written cases in ancient texts? that specifically state that not mythology not stories of following the antelope or going through the tree literally something in some sort of ancient text that said this person died they saw all of this and they were brought back and this is what they said what in what cultures did you read that and if you did find something yeah that's a really good question and a really important distinction to make because um at the beginning i mentioned the egyptian stuff and there's no example from egypt of an actual NDE. They, that's not what writing was even used for. It was used for right. religious texts and bureaucracy. Um, there is, but even earlier than than some of the Egyptian stuff, um, 
You've probably heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an yeah. ancient Mesopotamian narrative. Is that Sumerian? Um, is that Sumerian or earlier? Yeah, yeah. There's a Sumerian. Um, okay. Sumerians called him Bilgamesh, so it's an it's even earlier than the Epic of Gilgamesh. Of Gilgamesh, but but it has like texts that cross over that were most. What year? Used what year are we talking about here? I think it's like a three thousand, four or five thousand years ago. Uh, yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, not five, more like yeah, more like. Four, I guess okay. um, around 2000 BC, something like that. So 2000 BC would still be, oh, that's still well within the Egyptian old. Yeah. old yeah. So the Sumerians were a different culture around the same time. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right, right. Give or take um, and now they're discovering all sorts of craziness that brings our timeline back 20,000 years with yeah. some of the archaeological sites that they're finding. That's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but so, yeah, the, the earlier version, there's a, um, a sort of story in it called The Death of Gilgamesh. That's what modern scholars call it anyway. And that sounds very much like an NDE. The, the king um, lies down and on his deathbed and he <clears throat> temporarily dies and he goes to the other world and he meets a panel of the nine deities who review his life and they talk mostly about, you know, was, did he perform the correct rituals and, and um, did he, did he live a good life and all this kind of thing. Um, and then they tell him that he will uh, become half divine and half human. Um, but then he goes back to earth, prepares his coffin and prepares his whole sort of funerary rites, gets his estate in order. And then, and then he dies. So um, that might be the very first NDE, but it's difficult to say because it's also a myth from from our perspective. It's 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 like a religious text. Um, but from ancient China around 800 BCE, there's you know straight up documentary examples that are that were seen and written as historical text where they said you know this particular person in this village died on this date. Um, he went to the other world. He met this this particular king or governor or whatever. Um, had these experiences and he came back and they even go so far as to say um, we know this because this particular bureaucrat in this village confirmed it and it'll be you know, stamped and dated um, and then they also go through other efforts to to show that it was true by saying you know he met in the other world he met somebody um, who had also just died uh, who was basically ha also having an NDE at the same time and 10 years later he met the same person in, the, in a village recognized him from his NDE and they swapped stories and realized, you know, dude, that was you. And, and, <laughs> and, we, and we met the same God and we, we heard the same uh, prophecy from that God. And so it was validated um, in, a, in a, you know, totally, if it happened completely evidential way, 10 years later. That's fascinating. So in, in, in stick, sticking with China for a minute, you, you talk, I think in your books, you talk about pre-Buddhist China. So right. is that's who so in 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 those NDEs it was governors or what deities did they have pro, because I don't know a lot about pre-China uh ancient China uh, you know I mean obviously Buddha uh and yeah. Confucius and but that's much more current in the ancient world so what yeah. who showed up what kind of deities did they have Yeah it was it was usually um there's a sky deity named uh, Shengdi so it would it would either be him or it would be some kind of um his scribe, you know, the uh, or some kind of lower level um, bureaucratic secretary, official. secretary, secretary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's another thing that's you know very cultural about Chinese NDEs, ancient Chinese NDEs, anyway, is that 
you know, the society was super bureaucratic and, and all these levels of, of bureaucrats and, and governors and counselors and all this stuff. And that's reflected in the NDEs. There, it's an incredibly bureaucratic afterlife. So um, even the positive examples, you know, sound like hell to me. But um, it's yeah, kind of like yeah, um, so. it's kind of like the Albert Brooks movie, Defending Your Life. Uh, oh, oh, you have to see that movie. Are you kidding me? It's all about okay. the afterlife. I can't believe okay. you haven't seen that. <laughs> Meryl Streep, Albert Brooks. It's it's all bureaucratic. They go, there's a bus, there's a life review, but then you have to defend your life. And there's a, there's two court, there's there's a prosecutor and a defender. And depending okay. on how long your your days is like, is how bad your life was. So Albert Brooks was like nine days in court right. and Meryl Streep was done in like two and she was like a hero and oh it's okay. it's wonderful you have to watch I'll it check it out yeah um but so <laughs> so in the in the buddhist tradition does buddha show up yeah and in fact it's it's interesting in um the tibetan book of the dead yeah. um i think the tibetan book of the dead is of all the religious texts in the world it's probably the one that knows the most about near death experiences and and what's going to happen in an afterlife um, and I say that even as somebody who's agnostic about the whole thing, because they they describe it so clearly um, and and so intelligently that um, and and ultimately in a way that um, doesn't really conflict with Western science. It's it's ultimately an illusionary, elusive experience. So um so it even says things like you know the person um, who has an ND or who who dies and who um, will will encounter whatever deity is, is going to be the most relevant to them. Well, it so, says um, that it says, yeah, that. it basically says that. Yeah. And, and, it, and just that the whole um, afterlife experience, especially tr the transition will be, you know, sort of tailor made to comfort whatever culture um, you come from. So that's um, fast. I, I mean, I, I know of the, the book of the dead, but um, that is, that's fascinating. I got to actually read that book now. Yeah, and in fact, um, Mahayana Buddhism in general, it seems to really have have nailed um, the afterlife. You know, they they they've taken into account um, the diversity of experiences and the the cultural differences between people, and they essentially describe it like as if it's almost like a um, a shared lucid dream between all the other different spirits in the other world. So, um, not that it's not real, but that it's kind of created. By, by everybody in, in this kind of co-created world. And that, you know, obviously accounts for the differences between um, different people's accounts of near-death experiences, but also for the similarities because you're, you're sharing this co-created world, but we all experience it in different ways. And if if we're kind of attracted or, or create these group group souls that are creating the other world, um, you know, it's it would make sense that we're doing it with people that are mostly from our own, you know, familiar cultural um perspectives so you know with all your all your research what part does reincarnation play in in all of these ideas because if there's a life review there's an assumption that there's more lives to live because if you're just being judged on the one i know a lot of people who are going to be very upset <laughs> <laughs> you know so the concept of reincarnation do you in your studies what how far back does the concept of reincarnation go does it go back i know to the vedas is there anything older than that even in ancient even in ancient um um uh, egyptian texts and things like that yeah not really um 
the and the earliest Vedic texts, there's there's only kind of hints, like in the Rig Veda and the early stuff. It's it doesn't become sort of fully formed, it seems, until the until the Upanishads. But I think it was there. Um, it just maybe was um, kind of esoteric. Those texts are really difficult to 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 read and and complicated. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know if you're. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with. Ian Stevenson's studies in uh, reincarnation. He, he was a University of Virginia psychiatrist, and he focused on children who remember past lives. Oh yeah, uh, I've heard of that. I've been wanting to get. I wanted to get somebody on the show that talks about that. Yeah, um, and they're really interesting. He, he was a you know he started off as as pretty skeptical and and a very you know a good scientist, good honest scientist, um, and he found all these accounts of of. You know, children who suddenly start saying, and, and like from the age of you know two years old or even even younger, sometimes, like you know, I want to go see my other mommy, or or, or um, I'm I I remember this dying in a plane crash or whatever it was. You know, really specific kinds of memories, and then sometimes you know he would he would trace the account um, back to the child's actual previous family or alleged previous family, and the kid would go. Um, find their his previous house or her previous right. house even mm -hmm. say like you know turn right here turn left here and um all these kind of very accurate statements that that crazy don't, yeah and they don't seem to be able to be explained by you know being coached or whatever but of course it's difficult you can always find a way to say well he didn't it didn't come out until he was six and he talked about it when he was two and what could have happened in the meantime or whatever right but um but for my my purpose is for my research. The, the really interesting ones are the children who remember the death of their previous personality. So, um, because that's effectively uh, a near-death experience. So, just for an example, there's a a 19th century uh, Japanese account of of a kid who um, remembered not only his past life, but he remembered that past life dying. He remembered leaving the body of that person. Um, seeing his parents mourning and his previous parents mourning and crying at the gravesite. He saw his body there. He sat down at the grave for a while. Um, and then he went to another world and he met the being of light. I can't remember. If, I guess it was probably the Buddha, um, some kind of spirit entity anyway, um, and kind of chose the parents that he was going to go into or the village that he was going to go into next. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, and what's interesting about that is there's a, they're pretty rare, but there's, you know, a good, a fairly good sample of these accounts, you know, maybe a, a few dozen. Um, and they really correspond to near-death experiences really pretty clearly. I mean, it's it's got the leaving the body, seeing the body, um, going through darkness, emerging into light, meeting the being, meeting relatives. Um, it's just that instead of, being told to come back or, or suddenly finding themselves back, they instead um, choose a new body or, or direct directed to their new body. So whether that means uh, some people incarnate and some don't, um, I don't know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fair. It's fairly interesting because I mean, reincarnation is a concept that's been around for such a long time and 
and it's talked about and obviously in Hindu texts and things like that. I, I just was curious if you knew when it started, like what was the, you know, the, were the Sumerians talking about re returning in life, you know, were old, even older or Meso Meso is there even a concept of reincarnation in Mesoamerica and in the Mayan or Aztec or Altec? No, they, they go to different afterlife realms um, depending on, <clears throat> the way in which they died. So a woman who dies in childbirth or a, a warrior who dies in battle, they get a better afterlife than somebody who just dies of old age because they were again more heroic. But um but yeah I think it's it's probably the the um Vedic ancient Indian text the, the first that I can think of offhand anyway. And it's um, and it's and it's a fairly complex system. Uh, hmm. If I remember the Hindu texts, it's like, you know, yeah. there's the different levels of like, if you're born in an undesirable or un undesirable or what's the. Yeah. Untouchable. Untouchable. Thank you. The untouchables at the different stages, not stages, but uh, what's Casts. the word? Cast. Thank you. The cast system. Yeah. It's really specific and yeah. it's very com complex, the reincarnation idea in Hinduism. But it's very structured, very, very structured. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah. loosey goosey. Right. Hinduism but, is one thing; it ain't loosey goosey. Yeah, but none of that is um, is in the earliest texts. Like it's there's That's no later. cast. Yeah, yeah. So the the Vedas and Upanishads and all that. There's um, there's no um, cast distinct distinctions as far as the afterlife goes. So then, is that is that something that was brought in years? I mean, in in later years, for more of a controlling aspect of it. It's more the religious. Yeah. Yeah. dogma if you will just to kind of control a little yeah bit more. and an, an interesting thing on on that note is um one thing i noticed across cultures is is the more um religion in general but especially afterlife beliefs and rituals and practices the more they become accessible to the, to the people rather than just the kings you know like in in egypt for example you know the pyramids are the most obvious example um there's this idea that the afterlife was kind of reserved for the pharaohs for the elite right um which is, you know, that itself is debatable, but just kind of working with that, it was definitely not as accessible, um, you know, because people weren't literate. Um, right. They didn't have, in the earliest times, they didn't have, you know, books of the dead written on papyrus that anybody could buy for a nickel or whatever. Um, <laughs> but but as- No the, iPhones, no iPhones. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but what's interesting, and it's, it's also reflected in China and India and other places, as time goes by and as the afterlife becomes- democratized becomes available to the people um there's more and more descriptions of hell and yeah, and there's almost like lovingly described like you know if you if you gossip your tongue's going to be cut out and you're going to have a, a branding iron shoved down your throat for eternity or you know whatever it is it's like these punishments fit the crime um which you know you can you can speculate on on whatever the crime is you know you punch somebody your arm's going to be chopped off whatever it is and 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 it's almost these like um you know, lovingly detailed, descriptive kinds of things. And to me, that's pretty obvious that the more um, the populace is exposed to the idea of an afterlife, the more the elite are using it as a tool of control. So um, here are all the horrible things you're going to suffer if you don't behave as we tell you to. <laughs> and then on the flip side, here's all the wonderful things you're going to get, you know, rivers flowing with honey. 40, and, 40 virgins, right. Yeah. <laughs> That, yeah, that... and that's a very clear thing that's um, obviously not based on near-death experiences and, and is just a kind of, yeah, manipulation of of the ruling elite, whether it's the priesthood or the, you know, 
Right. It's like if you sacrifice yourself in battle, you're going to have 40 virgins. That's a pretty decent deal. Yeah. In a in a very materialistic mind that right. like there's 40 ver <laughs> 40 ver really. <laughs> <laughs> like really is that the thing that's like really floating your boat up there like you're dead but oh at least i got the 40 virgins like and i know and it's, I, it's just it's fascinating but even you know in the concept of hell i was going to ask you about the concept of hell across cultures because hell seems like you said to be a controlling idea of to control the masses like it's like almost kind of a societal thing to make sure that you behave a certain way like if you don't do this you're going to this eternal place of like if you gossip someone's going to shove a poker down your throat for yeah. eternity like seems intense yeah <laughs> it seems like an intense punishment for gossip yeah. but that was the way they controlled the masses because the masses were unruly they weren't educated they were instinctual all instinctual I mean, and you could start going back to like, you know, don't cover my wife. You know, yeah. that's my that's my bicycle. Don't steal it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> these are all controlling aspects of societal controlling techniques, yeah. more so than a concept of oneness, you right. know, be, being one with all and higher consciousness and connecting to source and helping other people. These concepts are not about that's not controlling. Right. That's so there's two different things. Did you see that across cultures? Yeah. And in fact, um, the interesting thing about that is um, medieval European examples are, are, are a good illustration of this. Um, there's lots and lots of medieval European NDEs accounts that happened usually to monks and sometimes nuns, people who were already in, in that world, in that mindset. Um, some of them are, you know, fairly believable, like, you know, they they just sound like an NDE. They went to the other world and they met a saint or God or whatever, and they gave them this information or advice and they came back and preached to people. Um, others might've been based on an actual NDE, but they're so full of elaborations and uh, obvious, obvious Christian teachings and warnings and threats that it's pretty clear that, that um, if it was based on an NDE, that they, they transformed it into into a literary text, basically into, into like a, a chick Bible pamphlet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, and, and I think that's where like, you know, some of the earliest ones are, um, they describe being led on a tour of the other world, like they'll be met by, uh, by a particular saint and the saint, well, just like in Dante's Inferno, they take them by the hand and they, they show them, you know, all these punishments and horrors. And then they show them the glory of, of sitting at the feet of of God in heaven and all this kind of thing, um, and I think that's very much a um, a manipulation of the concept of an NDE, and and it's turning it into something that's going to be um, an ad for the church, and also that's going to help um, you know encourage certain types of behavior in people. It's fascinating what we as humans do. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are there are negative NDEs. I, sh I should mention that. Yeah, and I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask you about that too because I've had one negative NDE out of all of them that came on, and it okay. turned into a positive one. Jesus came and protected them from right. the negative things that were happening. Okay. I haven't heard of a personally haven't heard yet of a completely negative NDE. No positivity. I went to hell and came back. Nothing good to talk about. Good yeah. luck. Like, I haven't heard that. Uh, what is your experience? Yeah, there are a few. Um, most of them, there's kind of, they seem to be in kind of two categories. 
um, on the one hand, a lot of them are kind of confusional and they don't have the clarity and, and uh, transformational aspects of a, of a regular NDE. Um, they might describe like I was in darkness and I, and, and I felt like there were hands coming from below and pulling me down. And like, that's the extent of the NDE, right? And then there are other examples that seem uh, descriptively just like an NDE, but the person experiences it and interprets it in a threatening way. So, you know, I went rushing through darkness and I was terrified and I saw this being of light and, and it was this, you know, horrible, um, oppressive thing and I couldn't wait to get away from it. And um, the, the darkness was oppressive. So it seems like it's, the it's their own mind. baggage, the baggage that they're bringing into the afterlife. Exactly. Like... Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, very, very um, evident in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You know, it's that's that's a good explanation for it. That um... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, if, if you die with this fear and negativity and imprinting of all the threats of hell and all that other stuff, um, then that might be what you're going to experience. But if you die more consciously and open-minded and um, you're not so afraid, then maybe you're going to get a better afterlife. Or, or at least a better journey, better trip, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a good point because the NDE is just the journey there. Um, we don't know what's going to happen on the other side of that journey. Right, exactly. We're just going to to the edge of the door, but we're not allowed into party into the party yet. We're just like <laughs> experience right. everything outside. We hear the party in the other side. We hear the music pounding, but we're not allowed in. The bouncer's like, if you walk through this door, you're not coming back out. This is the right. party. You're gonna stay here forever. Do you yeah. want to go back down? Uh, know, maybe you can get your hand stamped and <laughs> basically I think that's when near death you're getting your hand stamped yeah. and, and being sent back. I can feel like he's <laughs> he can come right through. He was he's been here before. Yeah, <laughs> right through once. <laughs> once he's been once. Oh, many have. I've I've had two, three, four that near death experiences in a year. And I'm yeah. just always saying when I when I interview these people, I go, "What are you doing? Why are you dying so many times? I mean, you need yeah. something needs to stop." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One, yeah, I can but... accept. Two, even maybe. But when you're into threes and the fours, you need to just bubble wrap yourself and eat, <laughs> and eat kale all day. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. at a certain But then point. There's, there's theories that um, some people are are more susceptible, not not to dying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> per se, but um, but more susceptible to having like these visionary kinds of experiences. So so that might might play a role. There's uh, Native American examples like that where where you know. A guy reported dying three or four times, and you wonder, like, how did he keep having these NDEs all the time? Well, it's kind of like people who have, you know, um, psychic abilities or mediumships or right. able to see, you know, things in the future and these kind of ideas. There are people who are wired a little bit differently or might have some sort of perceptions that we might not have in yeah. one way, shape, or form. Um, so that makes sense. That makes right. that makes all the sense of the world. Now, I, I I heard you talk about um the theory of origins and development of the afterlife beliefs across culture. You have a theory that kind of encompasses all that. What is that theory? Yeah, well, it's basically that um, you know, they're largely grounded in in near-death experiences in a lot of different cultures. And um, yeah, my first book when I mentioned the the Egyptian and Vedic and Mesopotamian and Mesoamerican and China. <laughs> That was a looking at afterlife beliefs and trying to sort of match up 
near-death experiences to them and see like you know if near death if, if afterlife beliefs are this similar to indies around the world then maybe that's what was going on um but in the second book where i looked that's where i looked at the indigenous societies and um you know the native american african and pacific cultures going back to sort of 17th century to the 1940s ish um i found you know dozens and dozens of examples of people in these tribes just saying like a missionary or, or an anthropologist or whatever would say, um, you know, what are your afterlife beliefs and how do you know? And they would describe them. And then they would say, we know because this particular person on this date or, or in this era, whatever, um, went there, he died, he went there and he came back and he told us. So it was just um, a validation of that whole idea. We have dozens of people in all different cultures around the world saying that their afterlife beliefs were based on a near-death experience which um you know going back to the very beginning where the whole idea in in religious studies where you're not supposed to talk about a kind of experience that could influence or could cause religious beliefs that's exactly what we have so um we can even call it a religious experience in a way because what it's it, just what it does to people and even on the sorry to interrupt but, sure, but sure, even sure. A, on like the um individual level it, it changes people's beliefs when they have them there's a, yeah. a famous example of um a philosopher, materialist philosopher named A.J. Ayer, who, um, you know, his whole life was based on atheist philosophy, basically. And he died and he came back to life and he said something like, um, I saw a divine being. I'm going to have to rework all of my my theories and, <laughs> and all of my um, ideas that, that I've done for my whole life's work. Um, a little bit later, he kind of recanted and said, oh, I'm not sure. But um, but the idea that that was the what he what he took from it is... Um, that's pretty powerful. Let me ask you: What is the oldest um, culture that you that you studied that you had access to studying? Um, it would be the Egyptian and, and Sumerian, um, but the oldest NDE would be the if if we consider the Gilgamesh one, that that would be the oldest NDE, I think. This, and it's, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I'm assuming that you when you've been doing all this research in these in these different cultures, you found common stories about creation um about the great flood that's in every single culture throughout the world has a version of that no matter where you were in the world um you found a lot of these similar things is there anything that surprised you that you're like man i can't believe this is so universal across all either in near death or in any any idea or any concept that you had you found yeah um well actually i would say what was surprising was that creation myths are far more different across cultures than afterlife beliefs are. And that's another thing that makes me think that, you know, they're probably based on this common experience of a near-death experience because there's no experience to base a creation myth on. You know, we don't really remember um, the creation of the world or, or, or the emergence of humans, however it happened. Oh, um, you mean like going back past the flood, past... Yeah, um, or or how whatever the creation myth of a particular culture is, um, you know, like some cultures they we came from pumpkin seeds or or whatever it is. Um, and in a Aztec myth, um, we came from bones that were brought from the other world by. Um, oh, the, 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 the right. That's the one thing I have found in my studies is that that there is a a group, a either outer worldly sky beings. That's a very common, I mean, in Hinduism, I mean, 
there's wars in the sky and right. tech, they were talking about technologies and cities in the sky 6,000 years ago. Um, yeah. That's pretty insane. But the concept of uh, sky gods or the gods or things coming from the sky um, to create is one. Mm-hmm. And then the other one I found is after the flood, mm-hmm. um, some sort of wise person showing up right. to yeah. teach them um, about technology, about agriculture, about architecture. And that's really cross board. I found it's from Mesoamerica, China, um, in, in Hinduism or yeah. excuse me, in Sumerian. In, in Sumerian. I mean, yeah. well, that's the, the, uh, what do they call the Alma, the, Oh God, what is the Sumerian gods called? Uh, the Anuna. The Anuna. Yeah. They knew yeah. that they, they all have it. Obviously the Egyptians as yeah. well. You found this as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty common for sure. It's really, it's just it, you know, you start going down the rabbit hole, and you this this is takes lifetimes. I mean, you could take yeah. absolute lifetimes digging into these into these concepts, into these ideas. Yeah, and the just on a on an archaeological standpoint, uh, you know, talking to an archaeologist, the the new findings that they're finding. Um, that are changing the timeline, like in uh, Gopek uh, Tepe in Turkey, mm-hmm. yeah, that that moved human timeline to basically the beginning of the last or at the at the end of the last ice age, mm-hmm. which we were told five thousand years ago, six thousand years ago was the cradle of civilization. Now that's being challenged, and not yeah. by one thing, but many things. What are your thoughts as a academic in this space, and what do you think? You know, what do you think of all of this? Because it just keeps. There is proof coming out, so I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical but open minded about <laughs> it. <laughs> so, um, because there is a lot of um, you know fringy archaeology stuff out there that's sure ancient alien stuff and all that, which I don't. <laughs> I don't of go course, for. Um, and even some of the stuff of stuff about the Sphinx. Um, oh, that's know, just it, yeah, the water, the water erosion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. Stone erodes. Um, stone is older than than that which is built out of it. Um, so, um, so, and and if you look at um, the Sphinx, it's got casing on its paws and it's got casing on its shoulders and different parts of it. The part that's eroded is the part where the casing has fallen out, fallen off. That's the original stone that was underneath the casing. You can't date the Sphinx by the material of which it's composed. So, that kind of thing. Um, I just think. We have to be really careful about. Um... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. These grandiose claims that that and I know it's tempting to like want to overturn um, mainstream whatever, you know, whether it's archaeology or whatever else. Um, but there's enough that's that's interesting out there like the stuff in turkey or or whatever or, or this um you know sunken ruins off the coast of india which which haven't yeah. been properly explored yet um so there's stuff out there that's interesting that we don't really have to go down the route of um you know wild theories that are kind of intended to sell books and and <laughs> well i mean and how about the stuff they're finding in antarctica and those kinds of things. I haven't heard really heard about satellite, some satellite images of like structures that they're with radar and things like that, that they're actually, or LIDAR, I think it's called, okay. um, that they're finding their structures in the ice, but no one can get to it. And I mean, in, in, in Amazon alone, just the LIDAR that they've just flown over and they just see 
tons of undeveloped like cities and pyramids that have just never been right. It, yeah, th- there's tons of them, like tons yeah. and tons and tons that are huge. Um, yeah. Even in have, Mexico, there's there's tons oh, buried in the jungle that still haven't been that haven't been excavated yet. Yeah, there's just so much stuff. Yeah. I think the story, the human story, is is ever evolving. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's not. It's not as they say. No pun intended. A carved in stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. And now, it's, you know, to, for for people to to um, act as if as if our knowledge at this particular sliver moment in history is the best knowledge, and it's the same with NDEs. You know, um, anybody who claims to fully understand them or or that they're explained yeah. away by the dying brain. You know, we people need to be a little more humble about what we actually know and what we don't know, or actually what we know and what we believe, because that's where the real distinction. Well, I mean, no matter what year you're in, and from this year to the back to 10,000, 20,000 years, humans always thought that they had it all figured out because yeah. the ego does not allow anything else right. to happen. I mean, the Greeks were like, it's Zeus, man. <laughs> it's and the Egyptians, it's Osiris. Like, I mean, what, what are you talking about? I mean, like, you know, it's that's just the way it is. Uh, what do you talk? It's heresy if you say anything else. But yeah. as we are evolving, you have to be open minded enough to kind of just at least investigate, have conversations, have debates about things that are coming up. I mean, even when Raymond movie showed up with the near death experiences, I mean, he got pushed back. Yeah. Um, yeah. and and it's been slowly, I mean, the concept of meditation. Hmm is a concept that people looked at it before, like you're nuts. Yeah. And now science has got, no, no. Yeah. It lowers. Or even <laughs> something like 20, 30 years ago, um, there was a skepticism about, about whether lucid dreams exist. And scientists right. were saying, you're not having a lucid dream. You're dreaming that you're having a lucid dream. <laughs> what's, what's, like, the, <laughs> what's the like, really? Does that, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Even quantum physics. I mean, what, what yeah. we've discovered in quantum physics and how deep we can, when we, you know, when they go so far down into ourselves that there's literally space yeah. in between, uh, like the, like there's nothing kind of hold, like what's holding us together. There is no solid material Yeah, that yeah. blows apart materialism to a certain extent, right? right? right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating concept. And I, I love having these intellectual conversations that, that I've noticed from my talking to quantum physicists, neuroscientists, people like yourself, uh, academics, I'm finding that science and spirituality is starting to get closer and closer where concepts like simulation theory is essentially Maya, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was talked about 6,000 years ago, that this is all an illusion and we're all in, in, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, Mm -hmm. but I'm noticing that things are starting to get, closer and closer together spirituality are you finding that in your work as well i mean your work is literally on the on the edge between those two things yeah i mean the way i look at it is there shouldn't be any distinction between the two i don't think science should be limited um to not looking at things that were traditionally the the realm of religion you know i, I just think it's um yeah I don't, I don't see a division between them and, and i don't think that even necessarily that things won't be explained by science it's just that science needs to be extended to be able to explain these things they, they and, just don't have the theories and the evidence yet to be able to adequately understand them and and you know just a little open-mindedness just a little yeah. little debate little conversation it's okay if things change 
Yeah, a little humility. <laughs> a little yeah. humility, you know, but the ego is a very, very difficult thing to break, my friend, as you, I'm sure you've seen in your yeah, in your research. Now, where can people find uh, your book, The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife, and, uh, and all your other work and the work that you're doing? Um, that book's everywhere. You can, you know, wherever you buy books, Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or whatever. Um, I also have a website, gregoryshushan.com, and I've got a Patreon page. I'm, a, I'm an independent scholar, so all this is done um, out of love and uh, insane obsessive desire drive. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, Patreon, Gregory Shushan. Um, yeah, that's and, and I'm on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all that. So, and, and my next, um, my... My second book, the one about the indigenous indigenous religions I was talking about, um, don't bother looking for that yet because it's an academic priced book um, for like eighty five dollars or something. But it will be out in paperback next year, so so that's good. And then um, my first book is also going to be reissued, partially rewritten to take into it into account some more of the um, the new Vedic stuff that's come out, and that'll also be out next year. And I'm going to ask you a few questions. Ask all my guests. Um, what is your definition of living a good life? Um, the first thing that pops into my mind is um, doing what you want to do. I don't want to, you know, it's a Joseph Campbell thing of following your bliss. You know, yeah. it's. Um, I, I don't mean doing what you want to do in in the you know. Do egocentric. Will, be the whole of the law. Yeah, I mean, follow the, your your inner drive and and what what your calling is, what your, your Atman is telling you. What is your definition of God? Um, I would say, uh, I would again say the, the, the closest thing that I could conceptualize is probably the, the Atman Brahman thing. The, if there is such a thing, the, the only way I can conceive of it is a, a kind of universal consciousness sort of thing, which and is not a, a external thing that's fundamentally different from a human spirit you know very good and is there any lasting message you would like to say to the audience before we go about this uh, work <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i guess i i hope that it will um you know people get so with near-death experiences people get so obsessed with the idea of you know is it true or is it not true and i hope that my work will kind of um expand that a little bit to say there are different forms of near-death experiences. There's a, a wider, more things on heaven and earth than, than you know we can conceive. And that um, if anyone is afraid to die from what they've been taught in whatever religion, I don't want to name names, but, but if there's a kind of toxic fear-based beliefs about death, then I think people can learn from near-death experiences that there's probably not anything to be afraid of and that whatever your religion is teaching you, it's probably not what's going to happen. It's probably going to be much more interesting and complex and, and mind-blowing than, than we expect. I mean, if if we can take what Steve Jobs, the last three words, last three things that Steve Jobs said on his deathbed, do you know what it is? No, I don't. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then he left. <laughs> so... Right. Uh, and you heard the, and then you heard the Mac sound go on. And then, <laughs> uh, Greg, it's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, you, I, I love, I love geeking out about this stuff. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks. Thanks very much.
I want to thank Dr. Shushan for coming on the show and sharing all of his knowledge with all of us. Thank you so much, Doc. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 164. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.